Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is a special live edition of Talking Politics. We're at the Junction in Cambridge. This is part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. I'm delighted that Helen Thompson is with me and our special guest, Aisha Hazarika, who is a journalist, a comedian, and a former advisor to leading politicians, including Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. We're going to talk about some of what's going on under the skin of politics at the moment. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We're recording this on... Wednesday evening. We don't know what's going to happen over the next few days. It looks like the next few days may well be the decisive few days in the Brexit story. That's going to have lots of implications for politics, but it's also going to have lots of implications for individual politicians. And some of them are going to have to make choices that they've been avoiding, frankly, for the last three years. I think if they can continue to avoid them, they will. But it may be that they won't be able to. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. But Aisha, I wanted to start with whether you, as someone who worked really closely in politics, primarily in the coalition years, I mean, before that as well, but that was when you were really at the heart of it. And when people look at politics now, there's this feeling that it's never been as bad as this and that it's kind of gone crazy. And almost the Cameron Miliband days were a kind of golden age where everyone behaved themselves and, you know, parliamentary politics kind of followed its, its regular rhythms. So when you look at what's going on now and you think about what it was like working at the heart of it just a few years ago, it's not that long ago, is it really so much worse? Yes. <laughs> and that's it, we're done. Yeah, that's it, we're done, that's a wrap. Um, it, it's, it's not just, it's so much worse, it's just a different political landscape like everything is different so you know when I was working for Ed and I used to help him prepare for PMQs write conference speeches deal with the media on a day-to-day basis you know one of the things that was so interesting in terms of how David Cameron and indeed George Osborne framed the attack on the Labour Party right from beginning from beginning one of the probably the first PMQs Ed did to the last PMQs he did against David Cameron. It was all about the economy. It was all about trust in the economy. It was all about the deficit. It was all about these kind of economic orthodoxies that always governed British politics. There were these kind of rules. And and now we are just in a completely different zone. And I think actually, when I look back and, and trace it and say, look, when did it all start to change? It wasn't just when we had that referendum on Brexit. I think the seeds... They've been sown for a for a long, long time. But I think they actually, ironically, the Scottish referendum in 2014, I think was the moment when emotion was really, really kind of unleashed into British politics. And I was struck by something that was revealed when Channel 4 dispatchers did their investigation into Cambridge Analytica and all the stuff with Facebook. And one of the guys there said, the thing that's changed in politics is that you don't need evidence to win anymore. You need emotion. And the people that can kind of stir up emotion are the people that are going to be victorious um, in this sort of era. 
if you look at the Conservative Party, which really strained itself through austerity to be, you know, fiscally competent, always, you know, we've got to spend within our means. They used to accuse Labour of having the magic money tree. Well, now, you know, they've managed to discover the faraway fiscal forest. <laughs> when it comes to everything, we're just in this completely sort of different world. Emotion trumps everything. Nothing really needs to be fact-checked anymore. Doing the maths doesn't matter. Policies really aren't scrutinised. And it's dangerous. It's a danger to democracy. So, yeah, I mean, I do sometimes meet up with Ed and we just think, God, if only you hadn't had that bacon sandwich that day. (laughs) So I'm going to ask Helen in a second if she thinks that emotion wasn't the the story going further back. But it is interesting about Ed because that kind of emotional connection was the thing that he was striving for and he struggled with. But it wasn't as if Cameron was so much better at it either. I mean, it's one of the oddities of that period. And certainly George Osborne probably wasn't someone you would say was, he's an incredibly skilled politician, but it wasn't primarily emotional intelligence that he was deploying, was it? No, but I think what the Conservative Party was was doing up until the point that we got to sort of the 2015 general election, we were still sort of within the parameters of kind of the old rules. And the, the emotion that they did deploy actually quite effectively was fear. You know, the Conservatives, particularly George Osborne, and David Cameron were very good at Project Fear. It was the thing that won the Scottish referendum for the Unionists. And certainly it was the thing that I think delivered them that shock majority in 2015. Which the, the narrative was very, very simple. Why would you give the keys of the car back to this lot? You can't trust them on the economy. And do you remember that poster that they had of sort of Ed in the pocket of Alex Salmond? And that was an incredibly powerful poster. I remember we went out door knocking in, I think it was sort of Milton Keynes, which was one of our target seats that we really thought was there for the taking. And we went there door knocking at the beginning of the um, election campaign and we were getting a really great sort of response on the doorstep. And we went back in the final few days and that poster had landed and people were just shutting the door in our faces saying, do you know what, I think I'm going to stick. I can't risk all my money going up to Scotland. I can't risk the SNP running West Mets. Again, that project fear was... Running Milton Keynes. Well, running Milton Keynes. <laughs> and so I do think that actually they did use that kind of emotion. But then you, you head into 2015 and then everything starts changing. You know, you have the arrival of Jeremy Corbyn. You have the EU referendum campaign, which just, you know, unleashes... Uh, you know, a populist narrative that this country was just not equipped to sort of deal with. You have Trump, you suddenly, you have kind of populism on steroids. And the the thing that I was always really struck by was I started working in politics in 1997 as a very junior sort of admin assistant, as a civil servant in the Ministry of Agriculture. And the glamour, it really was so glamorous. And, um, you know, you had all these truths and these orthodoxies and these methods in politics And it just shows all of these things can just be ripped up so, so quickly. If you had said to any of us, you know, when we lost the election on that morning in 2015, that just, you know, four years later, we were going to be where we were, none of us would have believed you. And it just shows everything you ever thought was a kind of reality and a given that can change so fast. So we started podcasting in the 2015 election. That was when we began talking about this and it's become a theme of our podcast 
do any of the old rules still apply? And we've discovered not many of them do, although I think one or two of them still do. When you look at the period that you and I and other people on this podcast have been talking about British politics, particularly now, say the last few weeks and months, where it's been, it feels sometimes like it's been ratcheted up again, is it qualitatively different from what went before? I think that um, the relationship of us all as citizens to politics is qualitatively different than it was when we started doing this. I think that not everybody, because I think we need to be wary about thinking that the whole country is obsessed with Brexit, because I don't think actually that they are, but that many people have found the last few years psychologically extremely difficult. It's been a trauma that they've been living through, it, and I think that's true on both sides of the Brexit divide. And I think that politics can be traumatic in part because you have participated in a decision like the referendum was something that Scotland knew before 2016 because they went through it with the the Scottish referendum. And just to say to lose something in which you've invested so much emotion is is a different experience than most people have when an election doesn't go the it way is, they but want. I have to say though I think that there's been much more emotion since than there was during the referendum. Although I think that, th- that during the referendum itself it was sort of moderately like this. It wasn't like it's actually been for the last few years in terms of the emotional temperature, at least for many, many citizens. And I think that's partly because you've added, we've added on uncertainty into the divisions that the actual referendum campaign itself brought to the, the fore. But we shouldn't get carried away with the idea either that that emotion is something that's just kind of like burst upon the scene, even though I do think the fact that it's a referendum makes it a big psychological difference. I think that actually, in retrospect, two things changed before we got to the referendum. And I think that the referendum itself had got a history that went way back before Cameron's decision to um, hold one. And the two things I think that were changed, one I think was clear in, already in 2015, and it's something I just already talked about, and that is the Scotland issue. Once Labour essentially collapsed in Scotland, which was true in its basic form from 2011 when the SNP became a majority party in the in the Scottish Parliament. British politics changed at that point because if the Labour Party is not competitive in Scotland, that makes it really rather difficult for it to win a majority in Westminster. It's only been able to do that basically without Scotland when it's won landslides in 1945 and 1997. So if you then had the prospect of a Labour Party being dependent on an emboldened SNP at Westminster in order to exercise power, then that is why the poster that Aisha's been describing works. Because under conditions of asymmetrical devolution, then the English Tory voters and potential Tory voters are not massively keen on the idea that the Labour Party is going to be propped up at Westminster by a party that actually wants to break away from the Union. And just before you come on to the second one, if it was clear from 2011 working with the Labour Party? Did people sense it? I mean, it comes as a shock in Milton Keynes from one week to the next, the poster appears, you think you're winning, you're losing. But was there a recognition going further back that a really huge problem being created for Labour by the collapse in Scotland? So I'll be really honest with you, I don't think Labour was sufficiently cognizant of what was happening in Scotland. And I think we as a political force became very complacent about the fact that Scotland would always be red. So it would come come back. It would always come back. And in fact, the the story I always remember is 
on the morning of the Scottish referendum when, you know, we, the Better Together campaign, the, the unionist, had won, and I got a lift back with this guy to Labour HQ in Glasgow from the Count, and I said to him, what, what's going to happen at the next general election? Because we have just done weeks of door knocking in these safe Labour seats, and literally every single one of them said to us that they were for independence now, and they wanted to support the SNP. What's going to happen to us at the next general election? This was in 2014, and he said, oh, hey, don't worry, they'll always come home. They will always come home. And then what happened on the night of that day? Absolutely didn't. You know, we had like one Labour MP left, Ian Murray. I remember Labour HQ had this big, fancy, high-level donors party, and we all went to it right, really late at night. And it's literally as we were watching this kind of massacre take part in Scotland, and it was like this sort of champagne cork sort of popped, and it, everyone looked really awkward. As sort of you know, Jim Murphy just lost his seat, and Douglas Alexander lost his seat. I mean, it was it was inconceivable. I mean. The Labour Party was the fabric of Scotland, you, particularly the west of Scotland. You had the kind of church, you had Rangers and Celtic, and you had the Labour Party. All of them have gone into disrepute now, <laughs> apart from sort of Celtic. But, I, but, and, but then... <laughs> um, Rangers are on the way back. No, they are. No, Dory, I, I'm, I have... I'm, Rangers will come back, but Labour Party will I'm scrupulously <laughs> neutral on this. When my dad first moved to Coke Bridge outside Glasgow, one of his patients said to him, what are you? And he said, um, I'm a Muslim. And they went, aye, but what kind? A Rangers Muslim or a Celtic Muslim? <laughs> Them. I was wonderful. So, so I kind of, but you know, you're absolutely right. You know, we hadn't appreciated that we actually had taken people for granted. And of course, we went up from one MP to sort of seven MPs at the last general election. I actually spoke to Ian Murray and I said, What's the best thing about having all these extra MPs? And he said, Well, Secret Santa's going to be much more fun this year. Mm. So, the second reason, Helen. Yeah, the second reason, though, I think is that quite a few other things changed in 2014. And it's interesting that we had that election in 2015, I think, without the consequences of it being clear. And that was there wasn't actually any risk any longer from financial markets when it came to borrowing. That, w- that lasted, I mean, it clearly is there in 2010. It's really clearly there until at least the summer of 2012 when the Eurozone crisis is still going on until Draghi says, like, whatever it takes. And you can see a little bit of leftover of it, I think, in 2013. But by 2014, you know, you're talking about interest rates coming down, heading not immediately into negative territory, but in that's the direction that they're uh, going to go. And any idea that these Western governments are going to be fiscally constrained just isn't there any longer. And so although on the surface you're having a conventional election about... Conservatives attacking Labour over supposed fixed or fecklessness in 2015. Actually, in the middle of that election, because perhaps George Osborne did understand this, he was spraying around promises. I remember being on holiday in Sicily at the time and for some reason switching the BBC on foolishly when I was on holiday and listening to him. He was going to spend money on child tax credits, inheritance tax cuts, all kinds of of promises that uh, he was making. So the, the whole Conservative message was actually undermined in 2015 by what George Osborne was promising. And, and actually that in a way goes to your point that you know, one of the oddities now is that that old politics which seemed to be constrained by what you called sort of economic orthodoxy that precedes this period I mean it, it overlaps as Helen said with the time that Ed was leader but people hadn't quite appreciated it and now it's almost like we've lurched the other way we've got an election coming up I mean I, I don't know what the real constraints are but it's as though there are no constraints at all. Absolutely I mean I was struck at Labour Party conference, obviously Labour has 
completely shifted and is now all about big spending. But they've made a, you know, they've made a political calculation, which is not which is not an ignoble political calculation. It, it, ha- it is popular out there for good reason that, you know, we can afford to spend this and we should be spending this money and, you know, it's time to splash the cash. And I, I mean, again, how things have changed. When I was working for party leaders, often at a political conference, you might have, I don't know, five big announcements that you made. You would trail them, you would grid one in every day, and then you would kind of lead it up to the leader's speech and there would be a big debut of your big fancy pants kind of um, announcement. With with Ed, it was the energy price cap freeze and you do a lot of trailing around it, you speak to all your stakeholders, you get all your costings worked out. So that's kind of four or five and that was seen as like pretty flamboyant and pretty luxurious and pretty much splashing the cash. Labour announced 30 big policy I mean lots of great but 30 I mean some of them were stuff they had kind of announced for but that is a lot you know that just gives you a sense of how things are just completely different but then when I was at conservative conference as well you know with the journalists it was like wow that you know it, it was not far off you know it was announcements substantial cash announcements of course you know the 40 hospitals then obviously got reduced to six hospitals like honey I shrunk the budget um but you know, it, it just feels like we're in this very, very different era. And also, because everybody is so absorbed by Brexit and by the sort of meta-politics that's going on and, the, of course, the kind of psychological drama that's happening in each party as, as it fractures, there really isn't the journalistic capacity or appetite to really scrutinise all the spending in the same way that would have taken place kind of four or five years ago. So I want to come back to Helen a bit later and talk about what the real constraints might be when we talk about what might happen. But even in recent weeks, the other thing that feels different, so Helen and I did a podcast the morning after the debate that happened after Parliament having been prorogued was unprorogued. And there was that session in Parliament that felt different when Johnson particularly when Johnson was at the dispatch box for, what, nearly three hours? But even in the run-up to that, with, with Labour MPs becoming... It wasn't just emotion, it was something more than that. It was, it was rage, and it was a kind of unhinged anger. And there were one or two moments in that debate which were shocking, although, in hindsight, it doesn't feel quite as intense as it did at the time. But do you think that the atmosphere in Parliament has changed? So you you prepared, Ed, for Prime Minister's Questions. Prime Minister's Questions is, I mean, Cameron in his recent book, as Blair did in his thing, says it's easily the scariest part of the job. He was terrified of it, so you were doing your job okay, because he really did think. And it was intensely confrontational. But this does, again, feel different. Does it feel different to you? Oh, it, it completely feels different. So just as um, lines have been crossed fiscally, I think lines have been crossed in terms of your conduct and I think the sort of ongoing sort of culture war as well so there was always again a sort of gentleman's agreement that you wouldn't say anything too dishonorable to somebody in the the chamber and you and and actually to be fair to the politicians themselves whether I was working for Harriet or when you know I did stuff with Gordon Brown or Ed Miliband, they themselves would have a line that they just didn't feel comfortable crossing. They didn't like attacks to be too personal in nature. There was a kind of a sense that, yes, you were going in to spar, but you also had to kind of not 
cross a line there was a sort of set of standards that you felt that you kind of had to uphold and what did they think would happen if you did cross that line well, I, I mean did they think there would be penalties or was it just because it they were good so much, chaps I think it wasn't so much penalties I think it was to be fair to them I think it was kind of personal character but also I think they recognize that once you start doing that it is a kind of race to the bottom and is that something that you that you really want to be engaging with I mean look David Cameron and I'll tell you we anecdote about David and Cameron and, and Ed Miliband like you know David Cameron was a really tough opponent at the dispatch box you know he was his schooling his background he was very comfortable at the debating chamber sort of situation and every week he really ripped the piss out of it <laughs> how Ed sounded how he looked his brother his dad his politics, his policies, you name it. He always gave Ed a really, really hard time. And it was my job to keep Ed calm on a Wednesday morning because Ed would get dead nervous. And one Wednesday morning, we had prepared six amazing questions on the badger cull. It's very like the West Wing. Um, I know what you can say. And, and, and I was like, why is Ed fussing? Because it's like, we've got all the questions locked down. It's half ten. Like, what's, what's the big deal? What's the worst deal? that could happen? What's the worst going to happen? And Ed was going absolutely nuts. He was going to the loo. He was, like, texting the shadow cabinet. And he kept running his hands through his lovely dark hair, which just had a little bit of silver going oh, through it. And we, <laughs> we were just we were going. just about to go into the House of Commons, into the chamber, and you hear that roar. And he turns around and grabs me by my lapels, and he's like, I've got to ask you something. And I'm like, uh, is it something to do with our deficit reduction plan? And he's like, no, it's far more important than that. I'm like, is it something that Ed Balls has said? And he's like, no, Aisha, it's far more important. Aisha would just look at me and answer me this question honestly. Am I a badger? <laughs> And being an honest person, you said, <laughs> I said of Ed, course not. <laughs> you are a human man. <laughs> You're a I can't proud, believe we lost. handsome Labour leader. <laughs> but at one point, you got various members of the Shadow Cabinet to come into the sort of a side room, and they just look at me, and be like, "Am I a badger?" <laughs> and they'd be like, "Are you clinically insane? Like, is everything okay?" I can't believe we didn't win the 2015 general election. I mean, that is like an. I mean, that's like a massive. But so, so I mean, but that is the level. I mean, that is the level of you know. It's um, sweet. It's cute. It's almost kind of. It's almost. And then you then you contrast that rightly. I mean, I was probably like many people here. I was gripped by that session in the chamber. I mean, I just ended up being glued to it for for, for the hours. And I have to say, when Boris Johnson re responded, particularly to, to Paula Sheriff, who was very upset and angry on behalf of so many women MPs and the whole Joe Cox thing and his kind of humbug thing, I, I really, do, you know, I'm not a faint-hearted person. I'm pretty... I was like, wow, that's a big kind of decency line to Because he cross. did it in the chamber? Yes. Or because, because he did it at all, or because it was the Prime Minister well, who was doing it? Both. Because after all, that language is everywhere, and much worse than humbug. But I outside. think it was because it was, it's, it was everything. It's, you know, I had hoped that he would be a better person than that. I would have hoped that in the office of Prime Minister, he would not have done that. You know, you want to feel that while the chamber has its many downsides and is often like a sort of playground you want to kind of feel that there are some there's some level of nobility still in this haloed debating chamber which is you know lauded as this great cradle of democracy and good intellectual debate you know across the the world I just was like this is a really really depressing moment and it felt for me like we had a horrible ugly collision 
of not just very toxic politics, but the kind of culture war that's raging outside of politics kind of colliding in the chamber. I, I felt really, not just angry, but actually very dispirited and very depressed at that. And Helen, so we, we talked the morning after, and it was, it was the first time I think we found it quite difficult to talk about this because it just was so raw. There is a, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm being naive here. There's a feeling that they've stepped back a bit, that it actually took quite a few of the politicians aback as well, just the, the atmosphere that was created in Parliament itself on that day. I don't think we've got back to that level since. I'm not saying it was cathartic or anything, because it wasn't. But there does still seem to be a sense among many politicians that maybe the lines have moved quite a long way. But there are still some lines that they're reluctant to, to cross, or am I being... I feel like after that day, the temperature has still dropped a little. No, I, I think the same. I mean, I actually um, switched it off quite quickly because I simply didn't want to watch it. And the next day, I, like you, I felt really quite depressed about it. And I, I don't think we actually ended up talking about it and talk, managed to uh, talk around it, as I recall. But I'm not saying I don't think it's important any longer, but it doesn't seem to have the weight that it did, the weight that it happened. And I think that's partly because people have pulled back from some of that language. I think though the other thing that we have to sort of try and think about is the ways in which Parliament has come to matter, and that's the kind of one of the the ironies of Brexit in this um, respect. Because obviously, in part, the desire for Brexit amongst many people was about making Parliament matter more, of saying that it should be Parliament that passes laws in this country, or all the laws in this country, I should say, and that some of them shouldn't be passed by the the European Union. And then we've actually had a situation where some of those who have been most passionate about trying to stop Brexit have been those who've also been most vocal about defending Parliament's rights in relation to the Brexit process. So it can look at times like people are on the, the wrong side of whether they should be in relation to Parliament's importance. But whatever side people have ended up on, Parliament has simply mattered much more over the last three years and been, I think, in in citizens' lives much more. More people have spent time watching these parliamentary debates. I mean, in January, February, March, when those meaningful votes were going on, the indicative votes, I think I learned more about parliamentary procedure than I'd ever known ever before, and I don't think I was quite alone in that. So we've had, if you like, a near visceral experience of parliamentary politics over the last three years, and I think that that's a shock in some sense for the people in the House of Commons. I'm not saying the EU got them out of the habit of it, but it somehow it diluted some of the stakes. And at the same time, it's changed the relationship of citizens again to watching Parliament, and it's provided a f- some fuel for the collective emotion that's already um, already going around. Yeah, and it has sometimes had, and we've talked about this, an almost 19th or early 20th century feel to it, but it's in the age not just of it being on TV. That's but, just Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah. But, of, uh, but Twitter too, on which Jacob Rees-Mogg is, if that's a grammatical sentence. But it's also true that there was an incredible passion around prorogation. I mean, that whole week leading up to that debate, there was, you know, not just emotions were running high, but people were making really grand claims about democracy being at threat and everything being on the line. And again, not that far on from it. We don't know whether a deal will happen this week or not. We don't know whether Johnson's strategy is going to work or not. But it feels like that hasn't led to anything. It kind of, 
these explosions of emotion do slightly burn themselves out. There's, it's not emotion on emotion on emotion. It's just we, it's like we go through these cycles around these events. We are, a lot of us, angry. There is a lot of passion. There is fundamental disagreement. There is a culture war. But there isn't the follow-through. Or do you think there will be? Something will happen, maybe the deal itself. And Well, see, I feel like this is one of the reasons why we're all just so kind of exhausted and sort of strung out by sort of Brexit because I feel like we never get release. You know, nothing ever sort of moves on. So we're all just like pent up. We get, we're, we're in this heightened state of anger, fear, rage and and it never goes it's actually the most unhealthy psychological state for any human individual let alone a country and a group of people and for me i mean you're absolutely right about people becoming feeling like they're much more emotionally connected to parliament because they're watching it on the screens i mean at one point, I think the Parliament channel, it was like it was like Love Island for geeks, basically. You know, we were all like, glue. thankfully everyone had their clothes on. But, you know, it's, you don't want to... Um, but, but what the thing that always struck me, when I was doing media interviews, there's a place, just a, a, a patch of grass, College Green, outside um, Parliament. It got to a stage where there were just people there all the time, from really early in the morning to late at night, a good hundred or so you know, even on a quiet day of people protesting on both sides, shouting, really angry. Um, I mean, sometimes it would be quite good-natured, but then it would get quite aggressive. You Obviously, the, the media tents sort of went up, which again added that extra adrenalised sense of... I think the problem is the whole country is just permanently adrenalised and nothing is happening and we're kind of getting more and more ratcheted up and we, we and the media and commentators I'm probably guilty of it myself we you know every week we're like this is the week that's going to shake Britain this is the week where we're going to get some resolution and we're partly saying it because we are desperate for it ourselves and, and I have just said that the next three yes, days yes, yeah, no, but, but you know at some point one of those those claims is going to be right <laughs> at some point Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So I, I want to come on to what might happen in a second, but I want to ask you one more question. So you, you wrote a book about PMQs and you're very experienced in that whole aspect of parliamentary politics. So one of the oddities of this, and this gets to the Corbyn issue. So in Cameron's book, he says he was terrified of PMQs. He faced four Labour leaders, and each of them had a different approach. Blair was very difficult in one kind of way, and Brown was very difficult in a different kind of way. And then he found Ed Miliband a very challenging person to, to face. And then Corbyn came along, and it just kind of went poof. It was like the first time he faced Corbyn, he says... He couldn't believe it. It's just like this guy didn't seem to care. I mean, he didn't seem to want to make it difficult for him. So he started with those people's questions. Yeah. But even as he moved away from that, it either never mattered to him or he didn't think it was worth acquiring the skill to put the person on the other side on the spot, which is, after all, the point. And there is an oddity about this period of kind of heightened parliamentary politics that the leader of the opposition, who has political skills, including above all campaigning skills, but I think it's fair to say he does not have parliamentary skills. 
No. So Prime Minister's Questions is so, well, again, in, in the, under the old orthodoxies, it, it did matter because it was the one time in the parliamentary week when the, the leader of the opposition got a rare moment where all the eyeballs that mattered in Parliament were upon he or she, and it was their opportunity to really show the country and their backbenchers that they are a Prime Minister-in-waiting and that they can prosecute a very, very you know, forensic set of arguments, catch out the Prime Minister, prosecute a big argument of the day, whether it's on health, education, the economy, whatever it is. And so much time and, and preparation would go into that. I mean, before Blair came along, it was actually twice a week. It took so much time to prepare. That's why Blair moved it to being just once a week on a Wednesday, because it was kind of felt that it was a real test of your intellect your performance your strength as a leader not only was it a chance to sort of project into the the homes of of viewers because back in the day the news would clip a bit of pmqs but also it was an important political management tool to show your backbenchers that you really were the best person for the job but remember corbyn comes along and he is such a completely new proposition for politics as we as we know it this is one of the first time, I believe, that somebody has asked his first ever question from the dispatch box, not as a junior minister. He goes from the back benches, and the first question he ever asked at the dispatch box is at Prime Minister's questions. So he's not. And it wasn't his question, he read it out, it was from someone yes, else. Yes, it was, it was from somebody else. So he's. He's not a man of the chamber. He's not somebody that has you know, spent time kind of crafting the art of good forensic question and being inquisitorial, almost like a barrister. He's, he's never sort of had to sort of do that. And I think he has a sort of contempt for it because he sees it as the old way of doing politics. He likes be doing a rally rather than being in that. He hates being in the, in the House of Commons. The one thing that was interesting about his technique, though, was that people's PMQs, which got lots of groans in many ways. But the one thing that was quite effective, every new leader of the opposition, every new prime minister always says, we've got to take the heat out of PMQs. We've got to calm down PMQs. Cameron famously said, we've got to put an end to punch and duty politics. In fact, my book on PMQs that I wrote with my um, uh, co-author, Tom Hamilton, is called Punch and Duty Politics because, of course, David Cameron didn't end punch and duty politics at the dispatch box. But... Corbyn has probably had the best attempt to do that. And by, by hiding behind a member of the public, asked like Brenda from Pontefract, for example, everyone could groan. But what quite a few Tories told us when we interviewed them was suddenly they weren't booing Jeremy Corbyn, they were booing Brenda from Pontefract, and that was not a good look. So they, he, it did kind of quieten um, the chamber down. But it didn't work for a very long time because people did get annoyed with Corbyn. And actually, his best PMQs were when he reverted to a more traditional operation of six questions, pretty short, a kind of a narrative that sort of led up to an argument that could go onto the the TV. And also, his team have used social media quite effectively. So they will sometimes you'll notice Jeremy Corbyn will just literally read out a mini speech in the middle of PMQs, which might not even be related to what the questions are, but that will get clipped and it will get millions and millions of views on social media. And so his fans, it will look like he's wiped the floor with whoever, even though he he didn't. (laughs) And to be absolutely honest, he really was ideally suited with Theresa May because they were the only two politicians on the planet that made the other one look good. (laughs) 
because their levels of skills at PMQs were just so appallingly low. I think, though, that one of the uh, paradoxes of the fact that you know, we have had a very parliamentary politics for the last three years and that a lot of people have spent a reasonable amount of time watching this is I don't think that any of us could probably think of one great speech that has been made in Parliament during that time. About Brexit. About Brexit. I mean, we've had a succession of people who resigned from Theresa May's cabinet, including Boris Johnson, and the set-piece speech for when a minister, a high-profile cabinet minister, with their eyes on the leadership, resigns from the cabinet has been set many times. And Boris Johnson's speech that day was, I did actually watch that, was dismal. There was nothing to it. I mean, Geoffrey Howe brought Margaret Thatcher down, essentially, by being able to perform a devastating resignation speech, even though it was... A, disingenuous, and B, it was Geoffrey Howe, who was never that great a parliamentary performer. People still remember what went on in that speech, but I can't remember a single memorable speech that we've listened to. I mean, to. I remember vividly Robin Cook's yeah. resignation speech. speech. It didn't bring down a prime minister, but it was absolutely yeah. devastating. But also, if you if you think back to the sort of vintage um, PMQs, you know, when, when Tony Blair used PMQs to absolutely skewer John Major, you know, weak, 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 you know, the difference between you is that I lead my party, you know, you follow yours, you know, all these big frames which were set at, at PMQs. And you're right, we don't, we don't have... Even any- Norman Lamont managed it when he accused John Major of being um, in office without power, as I recall, in his resignation um, I mean, interestingly, the standout speech that I have seen recently was when Parliament came back after it was paroled and there was the domestic violence bill and a a Labour MP called Rosie Duffield made this incredibly personal speech about her experiences of abuse and that was a complete sort of stop what you're doing, watch this, but you're right, it wasn't actually connected to Brexit. And in many ways the memorable speech, but it wasn't a great speech, but it was memorable for some of the reasons you were talking about the wrong reasons, was when Geoffrey Cox lost it. When he said this is a dead parliament, you know, in the name of God, go or whatever. And what was so memorable about it is it was almost like a switch flipped in him. And he'd been quite moderate and measured. And then he just couldn't hold it back. But it wasn't some great, effective, crafted piece of oratory. It was raw. It was but raw. But I do also think we have to be honest. Just, I don't feel great saying this, but I'll just be honest about it. I, I think the calibre of, of oratory in the chamber, just across all parties, is just not particularly high. I don't think we are blessed with a generation of particularly skilled communicators, and I think that has not helped. But I would situation. say that, but I would say that Geoffrey Howe was not, or no one would have thought he was gifted in this way before he made his resignation speech. Robin Cook certainly certainly was, but Norma Lamont wasn't. It, was no, it wasn't a necessary condition of being able to make some devastating remarks in the House of Commons that could have a changed the political moment that you had to be one of the great parliamentarians where speeches were concerned. So Corbyn seems to be, I, I want to ask about what you think is going on inside the Labour Party at the moment, but Corbyn seems to be out on a limb on a number of things, not least he is desperate for an election. And I presume part of the reason for that is psychological. He doesn't enjoy being leader of the opposition. The only time he really enjoyed it was the 2017 election because he's a campaigner. And you could see, I mean, part of the reason he did so well in that election is you could almost physically see him picking up. I mean, you could see him really getting into the role. And he seems, again, as though if he's got to stay in this job, but it feels like he kind of hates now, will they please let him 
fight another bloody election. <laughs> and John McDonnell is saying no, <laughs> which has led people to say that John McDonnell is now running the party. So two questions. Is John McDonnell now running the party? And do you think Corbyn could recapture the magic of 2017? I think John McDonnell has really had a... He is kind of the power behind the, the throne. Jeremy Corbyn is absolutely the front man, and he is a completely unique character. The project does not work without Jeremy Corbyn. I know people around him have tried to think about, well, who could sort of succeed him? Is there anybody else, a, a sort of a younger version? But he has the sort of ingredients, whatever they are, whether it's the fact that he's just been around for a long time, he's seen as having this authenticity which spans these decades. You know, he's kind of quite a clean skin in many ways. You can project your whatever you want onto him. So John McDonnell, I think, has been savvy enough to realise that he's not the person to sort of do that, but he is very much the brains behind the operation. A lot of the, I think, very interesting transformative, radical policy platform that has been worked on, that has been entirely John McDonnell and his operation. You speak to um, the business community, you speak to um, journalists, you speak to the people who are sceptical of the Labour Party, have been very sceptical, but the one thing they will concede is that he runs a really good operation. I speak to many, many business people who are terrified of John McDonnell, but they have a huge amount of respect for him because he has a narrative, he knows what he's thinking, he's done a huge amount of homework, he, he has a very, very clear sort of vision. So I think he is definitely the big, big power behind the throne. Now, but the story of the last week, that it's gone beyond that, and people, people call everything a coup these days. You can't <laughs> move without there being a coup. But that there's been a kind of internal coup, I is think that? that I think he has reasserted himself. I think that a period went by when it was felt that Jeremy Corbyn had become quite isolated from his very close allies in the shadow cabinet, like John McDonnell, like Diane Abbott. And it was felt by a number of shadow cabinet people who are great Corbyn loyalists, that they were having trouble accessing him because his gatekeepers, Seamus Milne, Carrie Murphy, I mean, Len McCluskey is a big part of the operation, Andrew Murray, who is Len McCluskey's chief of staff, who now works in, in Corbyn's office, it was felt, and it was said to me by a number of senior members of the shadow cabinet, that they felt their access to, to Corbyn was being really restricted at a time when the party was becoming very, very restless over Brexit and our position on that and very restless over, you know, the anti-Semitism stuff and, and all the kind of internal surprise. So I think the leadership and the people around Corbyn have had a bad couple of weeks in terms of how conference went, in terms of this botched coup against Tom Watson. And I think that provided an opportunity for some of these people to kind of reassert themselves and say, look, we're really going to self-sabotage ourselves if we carry on on this. Do you think, so that phrase that he's a kind of clean skin, he's someone on whom you, people can project their hopes and fears, that was true in 2017. It's not obvious it's still true now. I mean, I think that there is, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it's much harder to project onto Corbyn, mainly because of the Brexit issue and the feeling that people have that he's no longer just this kind of space for people's hopes, but he's actually compromised. Yeah, I think that the, the Brexit issue has done him damage in two ways. The one that you've just said, which is is that it does make it harder for projection to take place. I should say, I think that the projection is also perhaps limited to those who didn't have memories of 
who he was during the 80s, 90s and 2000s before he became leader of the um, Labour Party, or at least in part, that memory might have restricted the ability to um, project. But the thing that actually this occurred to me when I woke up too early this morning, mostly not absolutely in the middle of the night, I wasn't thinking about Jeremy Corbyn, but... <laughs> It suddenly dawned on me that the reason why he's so keen on a general election when everyone else in the Labour Party seems determined around him to have a referendum before getting to a general election is, is not so much that he wants a, a general election, but he just cannot bear the idea of going through a referendum again. Because obviously the, the last referendum was torturous for him because he was campaigning for something that he didn't believe. He was basically trying to cover up the fact that the people around him were sort of helping him be pretty half-hearted about it, particularly Seamus Milne. He knew there was no way of keeping the other bigger names in the Labour Party remotely on side with him unless he put up an appearance of effort into the Remain campaign, but it, it didn't work. And, I mean, in some sense, I don't think that he deeply cares about Brexit one way or another, but that in itself sort of alienates him from lots of people in the party. I think the idea he would have to go through that pretense again is just more than he can psychologically Yeah, it's true. Bear. Actually, the only thing that's worse for him than not campaigning is being forced to campaign for something he doesn't believe yeah. in. But, <laughs> but also, I do think that... I mean, the Labour Party's at such a sort of critical juncture, and I think what's been frustrating for, I suppose, if you're, like, in John McDonald's team... So there's always been an argument that John McDonnell wants something different to what, let's say, Seamus Milne and the people around, the really close people to Jeremy Corbyn want. They don't necessarily want to win power, but they want to completely dominate the party lock, stock and barrel. And actually, it's more fun being in opposition because being in government sucks, right? Let's be completely honest. It's really hard work, like particularly now. And you would, whoever wins the next general election... I mean, they're going to inherit the worst set of circumstances ever. So there is an argument that actually there's a group of people around Corbyn and possibly Corbyn himself, which is like, I'm really happy coasting along, being leader of the opposition, howls of betrayal about how dreadful everybody, everything is and, and, and we can do that really well, have the rallies, turn up in Parliament every so often, that's fine. Then there's the John McDonnell, and I do think he absolutely wants power, he doesn't want to be Prime Minister, but he wants to be the most reforming, radical Chancellor of a generation. And never in a million years did he think he would get this close. And it, he, they are close. I mean, there is every possibility. I mean, I know the polls are looking bad, but the polls did look bad for Jeremy Corbyn before the last general election as well. And I think you do have to take polls with a pinch of salt until you're actually in the heat of a general election campaign. He and his team have a really frustrating situation is that they have been kind of trying to be grown-ups. They've probably kind of worked in a way which is slightly more back to the old orthodoxies that we were sort of talking about. They're kind of within touching distance of number 11, yet all the kind of drama that's going around, around Corbyn, the bullying, the anti-Semitism, the position on Brexit, which is really, really going to cause us a lot of damage on the ground, they're very, very frustrated at that because they feel that these are roadblocks which which Corbyn's team have sort of put up voluntarily, which is stopping them getting to power. So we're going to open this up for questions in a second. I've got two more things I'd like to talk about. So we haven't talked about Dominic Cummings yet. And I think as a former special advisor, there is, again, a, a sense that many people have that he's running the show. But it's not clear from the outside the extent to which that can be true. 
It's also the case that he's not the only one there. There are clearly rival camps in, in Johnson's office. Uh, he has a chief of staff who, who has a different approach. Is it possible that someone in Cummings' position could have as much power as people seem currently to believe? Yes, absolutely. And how would that work? How does he control his boss? So in politics, one of the things that people don't realise is that, you know, you have all your people that pop up on the Today programme and Newsnight and all that kind of thing. They are often people who have the least amount of actual real power. The power behind the throne in politics is everything. It's been that way for a long time, but as time has got on, it's got more and more and more. I mean, I experienced this when I worked in politics. I have cabinet ministers, shadow cabinet ministers say this to me now, that they feel they have literally zero power compared to the Dominic Cummings, the Seamus Milnes, the key kind of advisors and confidants in the leader's office. Now, the reason why they have so much influence is because these positions, which of course are unelectable, they're unaccountable, they shape the message of the party, the mission of the party, the culture, Everything does emanate from them, and it's partly because it's a fault of the leaders as well. You know, leaders should be strong enough to say, look, you are my advisor, but this is what I think, and I will, you know, reject some of your advice. I will argue you down in your advice, and sometimes I will have to show my primacy in the sense that I'm the boss. But we have got, we've had a kind of a, kind of a growing trend and it's partly because we've had this huge kind of churn of leaders as well. And we, we have a, an increasing number of leaders that are turning up with no massive political vision, really. And they haven't really done the deep thinking themselves. So they're kind of outsourcing it. They're looking for that crutch. They're looking for an emotional crutch, a political crutch, an ideological crutch. And then these advisors come along who are often very charismatic. They've got a lot of very, very strong opinions on something they make life easy because they will just tell their boss, this is what you have to do. And when you have everybody coming at you and you're in a stressful situation, that's quite soothing to have. But it's The, the soothing Dominic Cummings, well, as he's known. It's kind of <laughs> soothing. It's probably soothing just to know that, look, some, when everyone else is like, what are we going to do? We don't, and there's somebody... Even somebody who will leak to the spectator a memo of such incendiary. sort of batshit, he's kind of going, well, I know where we're going. We are going here. But that is a weakness of Boris Johnson. And, you know, he's not the first person. You know, Gordon Brown had an over-reliance on, on his advisors, being rogue. Remember Damien McBride... Um, behaved, and Theresa know, May had a deep over-reliance on Nick Timothy. Absolutely. Or bled absolutely. on as Alistair Campbell. Absolutely, well. absolutely. And that does become, you know, that kind of unelected, unaccountable power behind the throne. It's a very, very dark force in, in politics. And it is something that I think, you know, we should, we are looking at it more, but it, it, it does need to be kind of not exactly regulated, but I do think we need to look at it way more than we and, do. And just briefly, Helen, do you think in Dominic Cummings's case, because he's more visible apart from anything else, I mean, from day one he was the story, and one of the old rules used to be when the special advisor becomes the story, the special advisor has to go, but not in this case. But he's got a very specific task. Um, it's said that the other people who work with him and who would prefer a different strategy, though they hate what Cummings is doing, they accept that they haven't got a better plan than he has. And his plan has a very clear target, and its target is looming. Is this a kind of distinctive kind of power? Is he a one-off 
because it's also said that his contract runs out on the 31st of October. I don't know if that's true. Apparently he's uh, got to have an operation. Yeah, so he's got to th like it's, it's actually it's a slightly artificial kind of heightened power because for now and for the rest of this month, it is his job to run the show, but it's not going to last beyond that. I think the issue of Cummings is, is pretty difficult to think about because of the fact that he's become such a, a looming presence for so many people because of the role that he played in the Vote Leave campaign. So I have to say, I take with a pinch of salt quite a bit that I read about Dominic Cummings and his influence now because a lot of it is coming from, from journalists, some of whom he certainly would seem to be briefing, but these are also journalists of whom he has, if you've read his blog, you know, an absolutely scathing, contemptuous opinion because he thinks that journalists are part of the what he calls the SW1 world where people li quite literally don't know what they're talking about. And if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching the five minutes when Lewis Goodall mm. doorsteps him. If you, mm. if you haven't yeah. seen, if you haven't had your fair dose of contempt recently and you want to see what real contempt looks like, watch Dominic Cummings answer Lewis Goodall's questions. It's fantastic and weird. <laughs> well, I had a chat with him at, at Tory party conference and he was, he, pl he kind of plays up his, I'm this sort of unhinged genius and um, he sort of said something to us we were at a, the, a, the spectator party and he said something like you know you think it's tough now you ain't seen anything yet we haven't even begun to ratchet up the pressure you don't know what's about to hit you and we were like ah, get me another drink immediately I need another drink. get me a bottle not a glass a bottle and a straw okay so last question I'm not going to ask you to speculate about what might happen well I am but but so say something does come to Parliament, some version of a deal, and it's not a million miles away from Theresa May's deal. It, it's different in some ways, crucially, around customs and where the border is, the border down the Irish Sea. But in many respects, it's not some radical departure. That Johnson will have made a lot of compromises. And we're back where we were. It's that thing that we never get closure. We're back where we were. My feeling of the last three years is that the way to understand it is that it's an incredibly difficult situation for many politicians, not just in this country, for in Ireland, in Europe. Brexit is a kind of nightmare. And given the opportunity to defer the difficult decision, people will. And that's part of the reason this has kept going. And part of the reason Parliament has behaved in the way it has, as people say, it knows what it doesn't want. But it really wants to avoid being forced to decide what it does want. The ultimate nightmare of all, being forced to choose between no deal and no Brexit. But if this deal does come to Parliament, a number of MPs are going to have to make some very, very difficult choices. So the DUP are one such group, and it's very hard to know what the DUP are thinking at any given time. And we've been trying to follow it on Twitter, and we have no idea. But there is a group of Labour MPs, potentially, who will be needed to get this over the line. And I don't think people have talked enough about how incredibly hard that is going to be. If Johnson, people blithely say, there are 20, 30, 40 Labour MPs who, when it really comes to the crunch are committed to honouring the result of the referendum, and if, if voting for this deal is what it takes, it's what it takes. But they will have to sacrifice their careers, probably. They will come under the most ferocious ab abuse, and we started to see it tonight. It will be really difficult, and I don't think 20, 30, 40 Labour MPs are going to back this deal, but I, I don't know. Do you have a sense of it? I, and I'm just thinking about this on a kind of human level. Yeah. I find it really hard to... I, I really sympathise with them. It would be... It's easy to talk about it and to speculate and say, when, when forced to do it, I'll do it. 
Apart from the, anything else, they have to justify backing Johnson's deal when they didn't back May's deal. So I think it's really, really, really tough for those Labour MPs. And a group has come together through Stephen Kinnock, a sort of Labour MPs, for a deal. And they have reached out to um, Boris Johnson and said, look, there were some cross-party talks going on. Why don't you give us those papers and see where we've got to and see if we could work around something like that. But I, I mean, he's talked to them a bit. I don't think they've really formally got into the guts of bringing back that sort of paperwork. He, I mean, I spoke to one or two and they said that they, they were really putting it on the line, getting, as you say, a lot of um, abuse. After the performance in Boris Johnson that night in the chamber that we talked about, um, when he was very kind of dismissive of Paula Sheriff, I sort of tweeted saying, look, I, I think after tonight's performance, you've got to think really carefully about throwing this kind of person a, a lifeline. And But that's very... You know, a lot of my friends were upset with me with that, saying that's really emotive. We just, we've just got to get a deal done for our constituents. It's very, very difficult for them. Now, I think the idea that 40 MPs are going to back Boris Johnson is, is, I think that's very optimistic. Remember, this deal is actually worse in many ways than Theresa May's deal. The TUC has come out today saying that this is actually not going to protect workers' rights. One of the six tests for Labour was workers' rights. A lot of these 40 MPs have said that environmental standards and workers' rights would be a sort of de minimis for them. So that's going to provide them with a, with a problem. But it's the moral question which I think is going to be really tough for them. Some of them are leaving um, Parliament, so they might just think, well, I don't care, I'm going to just do what I want in terms of voting for the deal. There are deselection trigger ballots going on at the moment and even just tonight on my kind of private Facebook group people were saying I would look to deselect any Labour MP that votes for this deal I will want to deselect them there's also the bigger taking a step back the consequence we talked about strategy in the as we were sort of getting ready for this like what's the consequence of this if you for a lot of Labour MPs and for what a lot of people think is if a Labour MPs help Boris Johnson get this over the line and he gets to leave with the deal that will turbocharge his chances at the next general election. And have you committed a political cardinal sin, which is you've, you've really, really helped your opponent at a point where he was in peril? And it's very hard for, for these MPs. It's basically the horrible choice. Do you put your country first, your constituents first, or your party first? Um, and I think that's the thing that they're all grappling with. But I heard from some MPs yesterday that a number of MPs who had been very against a second referendum, they weren't across the line, but they were now more open to this idea of what's known as the Kyle Wilson Amendment, which is you would let the deal pass, provided it went to the public for a confirmation vote. And if the public voted for it, it it's done. You don't bring it back to Parliament. Helen, briefly, do you have a sense of how this might go? I don't, as usual, but I, uh, I do think we've always got to keep bearing in mind that this is never just about us, this is about the EU. And the timing would probably mean, even if an agreement, a new withdrawal or a revised withdrawal agreement, plus a political declaration, changed political declaration was ready for another meaningful vote, that actually doing it all by the 31st of October is going to be pretty logistically difficult. So then an extension is required. And at that point, you've got to say, well, what is the EU going to do? Are they realistically going to say that 
Britain can have until the 31st of January or even longer, time to hold a, another referendum. The prospect of a general election in which, if Labour were to win, which I don't think that it would, but obviously it's possible, that Labour government would come in and then really half-heartedly ask, Jeremy Corbyn would ask for these negotiations to be started again, and that most of the shadow cabinet would disagree with him about that and wouldn't be taking these seriously. And then nobody would know what they were going to do, whether they negotiated this or not, whether they were going to back staying or leaving. And Sounds such fun. <laughs> I mean, why on earth, would the, why on earth is the EU going to, to, to agree to this? Uh, so there is a scenario, I think, in which the EU decides that enough is enough and that a choice has to be made. And at that point, I think the choices that the Labour MPs are facing is somewhat different because at that point, it, it really becomes... Are you going to pass this withdrawal agreement as it now is, or are you going to revoke Article 50? Or allow no deal. Yes, which they're not, yeah, going, exa- to do, which which they're not going to do that. So, yeah. And also, everyone's waiting for everybody. So some of the Labour MPs I've spoken to have said, well, we have to wait and see what Arlene Foster says and what the ERG say, and if they look like they're going to go for it, then we can go for it. But, and, and, but then I spoke to some ERG people saying, well, we kind of want to see what the mood is from these Labour Leave people as well. So everyone's kind of waiting for everyone. Everyone's else. waiting for Arlene. Yeah, everyone's waiting for on Arlene. On that note. Come on, so Arlene. It's kind of, so thank you all very, very much for coming. Thanks to Aisha and Helen for a great discussion. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a massive fan. Um, the head of uh, history and politics at a local state comprehensive. Um, just really wanted to see it in the flesh and see see it done in real life, I guess is the main thing. I'm very happy. I work at the University of Cambridge, so obviously the Festival of Ideas is a, a big event for us as well. And um, like, like my husband, very interested in politics, especially with Brexit and what's going on. So this is a good opportunity to hear people who know a lot more about it than I do um, to hear their views I mean I just listen to the podcast a lot and I find it really interesting and like it just points out some new perspectives so I thought it'd be nice to see it live when I saw it was nearby Yes, definitely. So I'm like Melissa in that I do listen to the podcast quite a lot. Um, I'm a second year politics student, so I feel like it's a good opportunity to come and in my free time to learn some more perspectives and some ideas. I was reading in a, an article in the Spectator actually recently that talked about has is debate is real debate dead? You know, is is the ability to listen to one another's views and you know, politely disagree yet still maintain a level of respect between each other and. It was quite interesting. I think that certainly our friendship, I I would say, is testament to that, isn't it? That we have very different political viewpoints, but, you know, nonetheless, our friendship is the thing that binds us and we're able to respectfully disagree. And I think that's what I'm looking forward to tonight. And uh, Sean has really sold it to me to say that this is not about one side versus the other. This is talking... And as he said, cutting through the vox pops, cutting through the sound bites. So. Oh, you're you're going in, yeah. going, going, enjoy, oh, enjoy, yeah. don't worry, enjoy. Nice. <laughs>